No, it's good. You like it here? I feel, I, you know, it's, I'm a little off balance normally, and uh, <laughs> this might make things better. <laughs> okay, uh, we are looking at the life of King Hezekiah today. Hezekiah was, in many ways, he was the best king, and he was also the king at the worst time. Uh, and, and it's a real important statement to us about faithfulness in hard times, about not allowing circumstances to guide us. This does feel kind of off balance. <laughs> about not allowing circumstances to guide us and direct us. Uh, the Assyrian army, we talked about how the Assyrian army were the bad guys who came in and, and basically destroyed the northern kingdom. Hezekiah was the king of the southern kingdom when that happened. And 10 years after Assyria uh, under King, uh, I can't remember, Esarhaddon, uh, destroyed or exiled or conquered the northern kingdom, King, uh, the next one, you know, Sennacherib, decided, hey, I want the southern kingdom too. And, and so you have this massive empire coming down on this itty-bitty little kingdom. And, and Hezekiah is the king at this time, right? And, and in the midst of that, we have this tremendous king, Hezekiah. And, and so we're going to look at why he was such a good king and uh, what the scripture says about him. And we're going to look at uh, what the most important or best thing he ever did and how we can do the same thing. So, so in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 18, chapter 18, verses 1 to 6. 2 Kings chapter 18, 1 to 6, you'll see why I say he was in many ways the best king. Okay. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze servant Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So, uh, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord uh, that the Lord commanded through Moses. So, so the reason I say he was one of the best kings is because the Bible says he was the best. There was none like him. Uh, and, and that's a really important statement. I mean, it's, it's hard to get around that beyond that. Uh, let's get a little bit more specific. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 30 talks about his Passover. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we could, because uh, it's all about this Passover that he did. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 23 through 27, is the passage I'm going to read. Uh, it says, Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the princes consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that comes out of Israel. And the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel. And the sojourners who lived in Israel rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Uh, then the priest Levites, and it goes on and so on, but it says, since the time of Solomon, there had not been a Passover like this. So it, it's, it's easy to see this guy's the best king. Now, it's really interesting about this, because we must, in full disclosure, say that he's not the only king this was said about. <laughs> and I, I'd like to show you Josiah, who happens to actually be my favorite. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 23, we read about Josiah's Passover, and... and uh, 
Let me read for you Josiah chapter 23, verses 1 to 23, 21 to 23. I'm not going to read verses 1 through 23. You can relax. Uh, and the king commanded the people, Keep the Passover of the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of Josiah, Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. He goes, Wow! If, I mean, because he was after jo- uh, Hezekiah, his must have been even more so. And, and uh, he was also stated simply, uh, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. Um, before him there was no king. This is still talking about Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him. And you can start going, what kind of deal is going? Which one is the best? You can't say they're both the best. Actually, you can. We do that all the time, do we not? That is the best pie I ever had, <laughs> right? We aren't exactly lying. We're just kind of making an ultimate statement about something. And, and I think that's what's going on here. And what we're finding is both these guys were really, really good kings. And we're not trying to pit one against the other or say this one's better. But, but that, I think that's the kind of statement we have. It's hyperbole is, is the word. It means exa- intended exaggeration. And I don't mean exaggeration in the sense that they weren't the best, but it's not like the best more than everyone else, but the A1 quality kind of a thing. Uh, they were the best that way. Uh, and, and, you know, the best pie I ever had, he's the best king we ever had. He was the best president we ever had, right? And you hear that statement, and, and it's, it's kind of a subjective thing. Uh, to, to make the point, though, Hezekiah was a really, really good king, okay? We're going to start with that. And, and the interesting thing is, is not only does Scripture say he was a really, really good king, he is the best known of the kings. I mean, that's the second best. The first is Scripture says he's the best. The second is he is the best known king to the world. I mean, you say, well, wait, everybody knows David. You're, okay, yeah, you're right, but history in the sense of archaeology, findable history, traceable history, his is the best time. Hezekiah was there in a time of great warfare and great destruction. And archaeology loves destruction. Because when everything is peaceful and fine and good, you go along and you live and you tear down this building and you build and you do this remodel and you build and you, and you clean up everything. But when war comes in, it comes in and just destroys and demolishes everything. And they say, that's a good place to build. It's got water. It's got access. It's on the highways. Let's build there again. They look at the mess. They say, you know, let's just landfill it for a while and then build on top. And, and that's what a tell is, by the way. When you hear about tells in the Middle, Middle, Middle East, they're talking about places where they have been built up. So usually there are hills to start with. They like to build on hills, but then they built up and built up and built on top of the ruins. And so archaeologists go in and they'll dig down through this layer and they'll tell you about that time period. Then they'll go down farther and they'll tell you about that time period. And, they'll go, and, and they dig down into the tell. Well, destruction does that. Destruction builds tells. Normal life does not. So archaeology loves destruction because they can find and trace clear, easily traceable things. His was a time of tremendous uh, destruction. In his sixth year, Samaria fell. Uh, we find that in verses 9 through 10 of 2 Kings 18 there. In his 14th year, Assyria comes after, after Judah, and they literally conquer every other fortified city in Judah except Jerusalem. So all these cities, uh, Laish, uh, I can't remember all the different names of the cities, but, but all of them have evidence of this destruction that goes on. And, and so the archaeologists love this kind of stuff. Uh, be, because the, the evidence is there and they can point to it. And the amazing thing, by the way, if this, if this should not shock you, the archaeology says, what do you know? 
the Bible, the story the Bible tells is true. <laughs> Shocker. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. People don't like that. So, so evidence of serious, a serious invasion of Israel is abundant. There is tr- they, they find arrowheads. They find all sorts of things. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel is there. And, and Hezekiah's tunnel is a really funny thing, or, or fun thing. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20, is, is where we find it in Scripture. And you go, that doesn't sound so impressive, right? 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Now, the Chronicles that it talks about is not the book of Chronicles. It was some other book they had at the time that, that we don't have now. What, what it's talking about is, is, a, is a conduit. Hezekiah, Hezekiah made a pool and a conduit from the pool. See, the, the situation was the, the water was outside of Jerusalem. The Gihon Spring rose up outside of Jerusalem, and it was the main water source for Jerusalem. Well, that's really great. It worked really great for them in peacetime. But in wartime, when you're besieged, it means the besiegers have water and you don't. <laughs> it's not a good situation. So he built this tunnel. This tunnel is, is an amazing thing for, for more than one reason. And by the way, the pool that it made is called the Pool of Siloam. You, say, you might say, that sounds familiar to me, the Pool of Siloam. John chapter 9 is the story of a blind man that Jesus spit, made mud, put it on the guy's eyes, told him, go wash in the Pool of Siloam and come back seeing. And, and the guy did, and he saw, and he had gotten trouble for seeing, being healed on the Sabbath. What a bad man. Okay, um, so, so that story happens, the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam is still there. What's interesting is it's been recently discovered. Uh, or rediscovered, and, and since they found it, they, they've dug it out. It's, it's a nice pool. I mean, it's a nice pool. It, was, it, was, uh, it had steps down into it. It had uh, uh, clean water from the Gihon Spring through, the, through Hezekiah's tunnel. Uh, it, it was uh, plastered, so it looked nice. It would, it would look like one of our modern pools, really. Uh, it was, it was a, a wonderful thing, and, and, and it was there in the time of Jesus. It was there from the time of Hezekiah, and it's there today. And it was fed by the Gihon Spring, and it's fed by the Gihon Spring today. Uh, in Hezekiah's day, it was outside the walls, and, and there was no pool of Siloam, so he builds this thing. The Assyrians are coming. The Syrians, uh, the Israelites need the water inside, so we go to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, and uh, we see the story written a little bit different. It doesn't especially mention the tunnel, but it talks about the purpose. 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 2 through 4. I'll just start at verse 1 because it's easier. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, speaking of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many of the people were gathered. They stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? Right? So they stopped up the waters to the outside, and they fed the waters inside. And, and you say, okay, that's, that's good. I, I follow what you're saying. Uh, but there's... there's uh, um, I want to I read for you a couple things. This is a book called The Stones Cry Out. It's about archaeology in Israel. I'm just going to read you uh, a, a half a page about what it says about this. That's not it. That's the broad wall. Okay. Hezekiah's Water Tunnel. 
Hezekiah was certain that Jerusalem would be cut off from the main water supply, the Gihon Spring, the source of which lay unprotected deep in the southern end of the Kidron Valley, outside the old city of David. Hezekiah managed to divert its waters by stopping up the upper outlet and directing its flow to the western side of the city. This was accomplished by an incredible feat of engineering that even modern engineers marvel at today. Hezekiah secretly carved through solid limestone a 1,750-foot-long tunnel underneath Jerusalem. This connected the Gihon Spring with the present-day pool of Siloam located within the walls of the city's southwestern corner. The Bible tells us about this, but not how it was accomplished. However, when a local exploration of the tunnel was made in 1880, recent history, more or less, you know, just 130 years ago, uh, 1880, uh, by boys swimming at the site, an inscription was discovered about 20 feet from the exit where the tunnel is almost 15 feet high, now called the Siloam Inscription. So in other words, this was lost to history. Uh, But there was this pool there, and these boys went swimming in the pool, and as they're swimming along, they say, hey, look, there's something carved on the wall. (laughs) And they go and they look at what was carved. Okay, Uh, here's what it uh, it says. uh, Now the so-called, this eight... 8th century account, means 8th century B.C., uh, account of the tunnel's construction fills in the white spaces of the biblical story. It tells how two crews of workmen armed with picks and completed their assigned task. So here's what the inscription says. And this was the account of the breakthrough. This is just a part of it. While the laborers were still working with their picks, each toward the other, and while there were still three cubits to be broken through, the voice of each was heard calling to the other, because there was a crack or split or overlap in the rock from the south to the north. And at the moment of the breakthrough, the laborers struck each other, struck each toward the other, pick against pick. Then the water flowed from the spring of the pool for 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the heads of the laborers was 100 cubits. 300, a football field, right? These guys are a football field down uh, in this solid rock digging from two sides and they meet in the middle and they, and they can't figure out how they did it. And, and there's different theories about how, because they wind, you know, but somehow they meet in the middle. And, and, and one, one theory is, is sound. I think personally there was a crack that water was seeping through, and they followed the crack from both sides uh, until it met. But, but it's like I, I say, I think that. I don't have anything to, th- to support that besides it makes sense to me. Uh, but, but they did this thing, and they tunneled, and they made this tunnel that still exists. And then, and then the archaeologists doubt everything. So here's an article of Biblical Archaeology Review where they're talking about why they know this is actually Hezekiah's tunnel. Says Israeli scientists carrying out carbon 14 analysis on wood, coal, and ash found in the plaster walls of Siloam's ancient of Jerusalem's ancient Siloam tunnel and running isotropic tests on the uranium and thorium present <laughs> in stalactites on the tunnel ceiling have determined that the tunnel was hewn about 700 BC, corroborating the Bible. And then it goes on and talks about this. But you know, the first thing people did was they said, this tunnel wasn't really dug by Hezekiah. We have this tunnel, but it doesn't go back to his time. But Hezekiah did this thing, and, and, and then there's this inscription that dates back to that day saying that they did it because it was an impressive thing even to them. And, and this still stands today, right? This thing is still there. The actual the inscription was carved out by vandals, looters. They came in, they, they, they chipped it to take it away because things like that are worth money. They found it. It's in a museum now in two pieces because, of course, the vandals broke it when they did it. But, but it was well inscribed, well attested to before it got stolen, and they know this thing is there. So, so we, have, we have, first we have the archaeological ruins of destru- evidence of destruction at his time so that he's well known. Then we have Hezekiah's tunnel that is, so that it's well known. And then we have the Assyrians' testimony 
testimony themselves. <laughs> I had fun. I got to get out all my books and stuff. Uh, this, is, this is from the Sennacherib Steel, S-T-E-L-E. Uh, it's, a, it's a prism, they sometimes call it. And it's, it talks about his, uh, Sennacherib's version of this war that gets fought in, in Israel. It says, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts in the countries and villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped earth ramps and battering rams brought uh, near the walls, combined with the attack by foot soldiers uh, using mines, tree trenches, says treaches, oh, breaches, as well as uh, upper work, sapper work. I drove the out of the villages 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, uh, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Myself, himself, I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. And he goes on, he describes this, but I'd like you to notice some things about what he said there. First of all, he talks about coming, first of all, this is, this is carved in stone in Assyria testifying to exactly what happens. It names Hezekiah, it names the siege exactly the way the Bible says it. He also talks about how he destroyed all the cities, but he doesn't say, I didn't destroy Jerusalem, or I couldn't destroy Jerusalem. He says, I sealed him up like a bird in a cage. But he didn't conquer him. He didn't get him. Which, which again, he doesn't tell the rest of the story, because it's not a very flattering story for him. Uh, but but Hezekiah's Point, point being made is Hezekiah is the best attested to king in Israel outside of scripture. Outside of scripture and, and legend or, or written, spoken story, things like that. Hezekiah is the one that nobody doubts or challenges or questions either his existence or his biblical uh, uh, accuracy or any of those things. He is, he, he was, first he was the best king, next he's the best attested king that we find in scripture. And, and so we, we, we know, for instance, David is always going to be the most famous king of Israel and thought of as the greatest king of Israel. But we can safely get away with calling Hezekiah the best king uh, for, for different reasons. And so we take this guy, this Hezekiah, who was the best king they ever had, and what was the best thing Hezekiah ever did? And the answer is to fall flat on his face. Not in, as in we say he fell on his face, trip and stumble, but as in prostrating himself before God. Okay, so, so we get to the story. You know, we, Sennacherib is coming. Sennacherib is, is, is destroying everybody. And he sends a message to, to Hezekiah saying, I'm going to destroy you unless you give me a lot of money. And so the first thing he does is he tries to pay him off so he'll go away. 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13 through 16. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. He told the truth, right? And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, Hezekiah, or the king of Judah is at Lachish at this point, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, the hundred talents of silver, three hundred talents of silver, and thirty talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord uh, and from the doorposts of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and over, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So, so he says basically, yeah, and it's kind of interesting to me that God doesn't say something negative about Hezekiah for doing this, but he doesn't. 
And I'm, I'm going, okay, you know, I would think that would be a no-no to strip gold from the temple, but, but he does it. You know, the, the gold wasn't commanded. Uh, it was just something they had done. And, and, and so he does it, and, and he's not criticized for that. But Sennacherib takes the gold, says, ha-ha, thank you for the gold, I'm coming anyway. And he comes and besieges Jerusalem, right? He comes and besieges it. He sends his armies there. They're besieging Jerusalem. Ha ha, you don't have any water, <laughs> but we do. And, and, but, but the army, they come in, they make threats, uh, and, and the, the Israelites are all scared. A message comes. The king of Egypt is coming up to fight against him. He says, don't you guys think you're getting away with anything? Uh, we'll be back. And, and he sends... So he leaves Jerusalem for a little while, and he sends a letter when he leaves Jerusalem for that little while. And this letter was a huge mistake. Uh, let me find the letter. Oh, it's in Second Chronicles. I didn't write down my notes for this part, but... Second Chronicles 32... Uh, starting at verse 9. After this, Nacrib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, and his servants sent to Jerusalem to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting that you endure siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst when he tells you the Lord will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Uh, and he goes on and he talks about... Uh, God's inability to, to, deli to deliver Israel. Uh, is not Hezekiah misleading you when he says these things? Has not Hezekiah taken away the high places, the altars commanded Jerusalem, before one altar you shall worship and burn sacrifices? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to the people of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands uh, at all able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? <laughs> and, and when he did that, Hezekiah said, yes, got him. <laughs> because now Hezekiah had some ammunition to go before God with, right? And so we look at what Hezekiah did, Second Kings uh, 20. Uh, is that what I was at 20 that I want? It's not 20 that I want, it's 19 that I want. 2 Kings 19, verses 8 to 13. Oh, that, that's the letter where he says these things. Uh, starting at verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned about the above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms on the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib. I love that. He didn't say, hear my words, hear my prayer. He says, look at what he said. <laughs> Dear God, look at what he said about you. Please do something about it. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Except I can't picture this story without Hezekiah falling down. Yeah. It, it may be that he went into the temple and he had a table there and he stood there and he, he laid it out like two guys discussing building plans, right? It may be that he laid him out like that and looked at it, but I picture him going in and laying it down on the floor saying, God, look at this. And I picture him bent over, maybe 
laying prostrate. I see him completely submitted and humble to the same God that Sennacherib is mocking. He's saying, dear God, <laughs> do you see what he's saying about you? Do you see? And, and God is up there in heaven saying, I like this guy. <laughs> he's the best king. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and God responds, right? I picture, I mean, maybe, 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 he's, maybe uh, Hezekiah is doing this. Maybe he's doing this. You know, maybe he's doing this. I, I don't know, but I picture his, his arms are out somehow, you know. Uh, he is praying earnestly. Uh, and, and, and God actually sends Isaiah with a message for Sennacherib. Uh, and uh, it's kind of interesting. This story we just shared, and when I talk about best attested, it's, you find it in 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20. You find it in 2 Chronicles 30 through 32. And you find it in Isaiah. I didn't write down the references. This story is found three times. The only thing you find more often is, is what you read when you read four Gospels. right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's just fully and thoroughly there from three different viewpoints. Uh, but the story is there. And, and so God responds. And 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35 to 37 says, Why you don't mock God. 35 through 37, same chapter. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were, these were all dead bodies. Wow. You go to bed, you have 200,000 men. You wake up, you've got 15,000 men. Did you stick it around? <laughs> and they got up and they went away. They, they just left. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, <laughs> reigned in his place. So he went home. I think it was, was within a year or two later that he was killed in his temple by his sons. And, and uh, Sennacherib was no more. This is the man who mocked God and thought he could do something about it. And of all the good things Hezekiah did, and of all the things he is remembered for, the one thing he did that was best, the one thing he did that makes everything else matter, is he fell on his knees before God. Like I said, it doesn't say he fell on his knees. I just can't picture it any other way. But he presented his needs to God. Yet what's the best thing you can do <laughs> in your life? You know, we get so distracted by what we do. You want to know a really, really fascinating thing? I mean, this is, this is almost mind-blowing, right? I read, I read in both those books about Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you go to Israel, I didn't, we didn't actually go to Hezekiah's Tunnel. You, you, you can go there today. They'll have a mock-up of the, plant, uh, the plaque uh, that you can walk through it if you have the right permits, I guess, or the right tour guide or whatever. You can do it. But Hezekiah never needed that tunnel. He never needed it. They never used it. I'm not saying they never used it. I mean, the water went to Siloam. They made a pool. <laughs> you know, it became a, a way to feed the pool. It became a way to get water into the city. But it was not needed to protect them against the Syrians. They did this tremendous, uh, amazing thing that they still don't understand how they did it. You know, today they go, wow, I wonder how they did this. Maybe they did this. Maybe they, I don't know how they did it. it. It's hard to fathom what they did. It was a remarkable feat of engineering. It lasted for 3,000 years. And he didn't need it <laughs> because God delivered them before things got that bad. We get caught up 
and what we have to do. We get misled by what we think is our own importance. And, and, and I'm not saying we don't need to serve God. I'm glad Hezekiah built that tunnel. Among other things, it's one of the great you know, historical things we have to, to demonstrate the reliability of Scripture. Uh, and I think, I think it was a good thing. I think it's always wise to be prepared. It was always wise to do things, to protect ourselves, take care of ourselves, and all those things. Uh, it, it's good. Take those precautions. Be wise. Do those things. I'm glad he built the tunnel. But, but the greatest thing he ever did was not building the tunnel. The greatest thing he ever did was not writing a letter or, or defying Sennacherib. The greatest thing he ever did uh, was falling flat before God. That, that is certainly true for you and I. We need to do things. We need to serve God. We need to be faithful. We need to try to accomplish his will. But going out to Kokolala and building a fort is not the greatest thing you'll ever do. <laughs> it's a great thing to do. Right? Uh, building a church is a great thing to do. It's not the greatest thing you'll ever do. Greatest thing you'll ever do is, is place your problems, your struggles, and your life before God and allow him to take care of them. Let's bow in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are God, and I thank you that you love your people and you take care of your people. I thank you for this story or these stories, Father, because there's many things tied up in this. I thank you for Hezekiah and his example of faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for his humility and humbling himself before you and seeking your blessings. Lord God, I ask that we will never presume that we don't need you. We'll always rely on you, especially in the hard times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.